Earlier this year, I read a bunch of articles and predictions uh, about the decline of the church. Some wasn't very new uh, because the church has long been criticized for being irrelevant or lacking the adaptation uh, to the culture of the time. And these are some things that have been criticized about the church since the beginning of the church. Uh, some was related to COVID and the disruption to churches that COVID has all caused. And some of the conclusions uh, from these articles were much like the REM song, Americans are losing their religion. Some, and I'm dating myself with that song. Some of you know that song, right? I think in the next service, if I say that, no one will know what I'm talking about. I won't sing that for us today, another time. Uh, some of the say the church have to, in some ways, they say the church has to get with the times or it will die. Uh, and, and that's always kind of been said about the church. In fact, some research will show if you start studying trends of the church, not only in church history, but even modern times, that churches that do adapt to the culture are actually the quickest to die. Today, the pressure comes from the sexual revolution, the increasingly digital age, advances in science technology. Some say that spirituality can replace, be replaced with the science of the times and self. And times change. Scriptures anticipate that the times will change. Jesus warned of this and the, the consequences of the culture putting pressure on the church and his people. If you look at church history, though, you see that the church actually thrives the most when it's not in power, when it's not the majority, but it's when it's small, often a distinct, unique minority. What I'd like to, for us to consider when we think about the church and we look through this series is that the church does not need a new identity to adapt with its times. We need to rediscover our true identity. We need this today because there are challenges that do come from our culture. How does it, what does it mean for the church today with a sexual ethic like ours from scripture to engage in increasingly confusing sexual time? That's been the case since the 70s, before that too. But how do we do that in today's time? We, we need to rediscover our real identity as the church because we're trying to navigate what it means to be church given the various disruptions that have been caused to our rhythms, to what it means to be church since being forced online for some time, still learning new muscles and rediscovering old muscles. We, we uniquely, as Sunset Church, I think we need this kind of rediscovery of our identity because we've surpassed 40 years old as a church planted from a Chinatown church over 40 years ago. And usually, if you look at the, the lifespans of organizations, companies, churches, anything, 40 years is usually when you need to rediscover or you will decline. And so we need to take stock of that timing of our church's history as well. We need this today because seeping, sadly, into the behaviors and thoughts of many Christians, many Christians, even in our church, is this me-centered spirituality, where the church is more about personal preference because they believe and function as if the church exists to be a provider of spiritual services to help you with your private relationship with God. Which is why many people begin to function with their relationship to God kind of like a buffet, picking and choosing various things, a spiritual smorgasbord where you just kind of pick based upon a particular music you like, a particular preacher you like, a style you like, a venue you like. 
It doesn't even need to be one church anymore. You can listen online to this particular person you like. You can listen to the particular worship music you like on the way to Muni. And you can all think that's being church. You can stay connected to your particular famous Christian on you know, Instagram or TikTok. We need to rediscover what it means to be church. Because if we're going to have the power that God extends to the church to be his witnesses, to, to experience all that he has for us, then we need to rediscover that. And that's why we're looking at this series on the church. I want to start today with one of the texts I think is foundational, one of the most significant texts in the New Testament about the church. And it helps us understand foundational truths about the church. Now, I'm not going to be able to unpack all of the foundational truths because we don't have hours upon hours, but there's a few that I would like for us to consider. The first truth I'd like for us to consider is the church is central. It is essential to God's plan. That's the first truth. It's essential. It's central to God's plan for Christians and for how he wants to work in the world. If you want a summary statement, you're taking some notes, the church is central. The larger section that we find ourselves in Ephesians, because we're just kind of jumping in in the middle of chapter two, but actually uh, the section we're in it go, extends from t- verses 11 to 22. And it kind of parallels this very important section that you may be more familiar with if you've read Ephesians in verses 1 to 10, which is the foundation of the gospel, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1 of chapter 2. But God, and I love that turn of phrase that Paul often uses in his writings. There's this situation where you were once like this, often very dead, and then God does something. But God some scholars in the past have said you can find the content of the gospel found in those two words. But God, God does something. He intervenes. He acts despite our deadness. Now we were dead. We were lost. We were in the grave. It wasn't just that we were limping. It wasn't just that we were a little off and we just needed a little boost. No, we were dead in the grave. Sometimes scripture describes it as being blind without sight. By rejecting God, everything that we experience is corrupt and separated from the goodness and abundance of God. That's what we call sin. It not only impacts us in our relationship with God, it impacts all of our relationships with other people. It impacts creation itself. That's why creation groans. There will be a new heavens and new earth. But God, in our section, verse 12, it says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's what we were like. But God, he intervenes. There's a seismic shift. Verse 4, which I just mentioned. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verses 1 to 11, and actually uh, uh, verses 1 to 10, and in verses 1, uh, 11 to 22, both contain this foundational element of the gospel, that we were dead, but Christ dying in our place, taking on the justice that we deserve, rising from death, defeating sin, gives us new life. I think if you've been around the church long enough and you've heard the gospel, you've maybe prayed a prayer, you were invited to accept Jesus, you heard elements of that one time. But often, and I think this is embedded into American culture, and this is one of the 
challenges and deficiencies, I would say, about our American culture is that we are highly individualistic. So when we're invited into personal relationships with Jesus, we kind of automatically think personal means private. Or when we're invited into Jesus, we consider that as something that's for us. And so we, we pray by ourselves. We read scriptures by our, we We engage God by ourselves, which is why we can consider, and many people think that you can be church on the beach by yourself listening to a sermon. That's embedded into some of the American culture that we have based upon individualism. But if you read throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you read it again and again and again, engagement with God, when God intervenes and acts on our behalf and he brings transformation in life to his people, it's never private. It's always to move us into the context of community, into the context of a communal experience. It's not privately, but with others. If we have reconciliation with God, that he has made us right before him because of his son, Jesus, that reconciliation is seen to impact all of our relationships with people. That the vertical relationship with God impacts the horizontal relationship with others. And this is an oversimplification, but if you look at the gospel in verses 1 to 10, it's God kind of changing us personally and internally, but verses 11 to 12 show us the impact communally and relationally. Those two are lock and sink. You cannot separate the two. They're absolutely connected. The church, the communal gathering, the koinonia of God's people, the assembly of God's people is essential and central to God's salvation plan. You cannot separate it. To put it as a question, can you know God without the church? See, when you think about it, it's kind of like a trick question, right? Because we'll all say yes. But if you read the New Testament, the way you answer that question fundamentally is no. You don't know God without the church. You don't. You can't. In fact, the fact that we think, yes, you can, shows the individualism of our culture rising to the surface. And Tim Keller puts it this way, can the surpassing power of God come into your life and flow through your life if you are not willing to be completely grafted into the community of God through love, truth, and mission? Absolutely not. The reason we are shocked by this is because, as I've stated, we are hyper-individualistic. Most people today, researchers have done research, can you be a Christian and never attend church? And most people, a majority of people think yes. The scriptures, if you read it again and again and again, it's not just mere attendance, that's a baseline even. But like you cannot follow Christ without intimate connections and relationships in the church. That directly is confrontational to the times because, and it actually ought to make us feel kind of uncomfortable because that's one of the areas where it presses against our culture. You can't be more like Jesus without the bride of Jesus that he died for. If you want to grow more spiritually, you want to have more maturity in your faith, God's essential central plan for that is in the context of, of his church, of his bride, of his body. Most of us think that God is going to work on us and we ask God to help us. It's going to happen privately because we are used to privatized consumer experiences. But it's never that way with God's plan. It's never that way in scripture. Even when he started his earthly ministry, think about how Jesus could have just went to the cross died for our sins, 
Like that would have been sufficient. His work would be perfect. One of the first acts that he did, aside from getting baptized and spending 40 days in the desert and the start of his earthly ministry, the very first things after that is to find 12 people, broken, messed up, conflicted people, and not even to work with them individually, mentor one person at a time and send them to random places. He brought them together because this is his plan of salvation. To put it another way, think about if you want to grow in Jesus, sometimes you may consider the fruit of the Spirit, right? Can you list them all? Love, joy, peace, testing myself, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Good. My kid can <laughs> check off this. She was asking me the other day, do I know the fruit of the Spirit? But think about those fruit. Love. Can you grow in love by yourself? Well, yes, in some ways you consider in our times, you need to grow in, you know, understanding and accepting and loving yourself. You can have that category, but can you grow in love as an individual? No, because love is demonstrated in sacrifice and putting others before yourself. You can't grow in love without others. You can't mature in love without others. Think about, like, think, this is what we think about when we consider the fruit of the spirit almost. If we think about it as an American individual, we, we look at that and we say, joy. And we sit there and like, God, give me joy. And we try to strain it out of ourselves, right? No, think about the most joyous experiences of your life. They're in the context of people. In fact, if you experience great news in your life, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in his uh, little book on the Psalms. He talks about praise and joy. If you have no one to tell it to, your joy is incomplete. Think about why when you experience great news, you, maybe you have a physical reaction and you just need to immediately call someone, text someone, tell someone good news. That's the natural outflow of joy. You need people. Can you go in patience by yourself? No, you need little kids to test your patience. That's why you have more, right? Because they will really test your patience. All of the fruit of the Spirit, you will not grow in any of them without others. So there's no growth in Christ. There's no maturity in Jesus unless you have the context of his bride, his church. That's one of the most important fundamental things I think that we need to grasp. And it may seem like a simple truth, maybe something that we don't even need to state, but I think given our culture, given what COVID has done and driving us to individual homes to consume services online by ourselves at whatever time we want. We've now had this disconnect with a biblical foundational truth that this church of God, and I don't, and we'll talk about this throughout the series, I don't just mean what we do in this an hour and 15 minutes in a service, but the church of God is the context to which God works out his plan and power in this world. If you want God to work in your life, and you want God's power in your life, it is in the context of his church. That's one of the truths I want us to grasp. A second truth, um, this is more uh, in, uh, kind of implicit in this text, but an author helped me think about this. This other truth I want us to think about, which is helpful, is the church is both organic and institutional. The church is both an organism 
and an organization. I got this concept from an author, a Dutch uh, pastor, scholar, Abraham Kuyper. He wrote in the late 1800s as the church was struggling to figure out its own identity in its culture in the Netherlands. And he wrote a sermon uh, called Rooted and Grounded. And he describes the difference uh, of thinking. And this is, he's not saying one is better than the other. He's saying the church is both. That it's an organism and an institution. And you see that reflected in our passage in these various descriptions about the church in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Bible uses various descriptions to describe God's people, the church. And we'll unpack them more in our last point. But one thing that's implicit as you're thinking about the various labels is some of them are organic and some of them are institutional. Some of them have to do with the everyday life of people and some have to do with the, the formal gathering of the people. The church is both. It's an institution where we gather for the preaching of God's word, for prayer, for baptizing, for teaching, for, for, for equipping of the saints. These are things we do together. That's why gathering for a members meeting, it doesn't say to have a members meeting in the Bible, but it's one expression of us stewarding things together. That's why when we have a baptism on the 25th, that's what we call the church to come. If you don't come and this is your home church, you are missing out at a fundamental thing of our church. And our church is weaker because you are not there. Because we baptize. It's an institutional thing we do together. It's an organism because as we spread out throughout the city, when we are leaving this place in our formal gatherings, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our jobs, into our circle of relationships, we're still a church. We're both. The church institution gathers for worship, fellowship, equipping, and we're scattered. Sometimes people call it about, you know, gather and scatter. We were scattered for mission. Kuiper puts, uh, puts it as the organic is the primary. And you can see this, right? Because if you use the institutional to describe the church everywhere in the world, it kind of begins to fall apart because sometimes you'll have the church. We were just talking with uh, David and Lorraine this morning who are, we sent out to India earlier this year, not long ago. And, and there's a local church there, but sometimes the, the gathering of the local church, they don't have an address. They don't do things the way we do. They don't have the same institutional things, but there's still the church of God there. But we're sent out for mission. And I think this is helpful. This is something we need to grasp because it helps us navigate some of the confusion of what a church should be and what your role in the church is at times. I'll put it as a series of questions. Should the church be involved in entertainment? Should the church make movies? Should the church make video games? I know some of you are just holding back a resounding no, right? Because you've seen, do you remember, like the cheesy, like not even that long ago, I was looking at, I just Googled cheesy Christian movies. They, I didn't know this movie existed. I don't want to watch it. But in 2014, Kirk Cameron made a movie called Kirk Cameron Saves Christmas. I'm like, what is going on? Should we make movies like this? There was a video game, I think in the early 90s. And they were like, Christian video games are always just like worse versions of better video games, right? So they made a video game called Spiritual Warfare. And basically it was a Christian version of Zelda. And then you walk around and like, you actually, when you kill people, they become Christians. I'm like, that is a terrible theology. This video game is ridiculous. Like, should the church make video games? Like that, no, 
No. But our answer to no is because we think of the church as an institution. So should the church make movies? Should the church make video games? Should we church make music? And you remember the subculture of Christian music. Some of you are like, no, please don't. It'd be like, if we, if we think about it as the church as an institution, it'd be like, well, we should set some of our budget aside for the video game industry of our church and we get the children's pastor to write the storyline. We get our kids to be extras in the video game or the movie. As an institution, the church shouldn't prioritize entertainment because it would cause us to drift from our main mission of making disciples, equipping saints. That's the institutional part of our church. But the church as an organism should be involved in entertainment. It should be involved in movies, video games, books, because as Christians are dispersed into various talents and jobs throughout the world that God calls us to create culture in this world, we are the church. So should the church be involved in entertainment as an institution? Probably not. As the people of God, yes, we should. This is one of the things that happens, I think, when we think about the sad view of a, a subculture creating Christian things for Christian peoples. There used to be Christian yellow pages. Because no, we, instead of creating our own little bubbles, we should be dispersed throughout all the world. I think this kind of categorizing helps us, right? It helps us think about what the church is supposed to be. It helps us think about what we do as an institution when we gather. It helps us think about how we equip as we scatter throughout the world. It's not either or. It's both, and we need those categories to determine what's right and wrong in different places. Think about, this is a fundamental question, right? When you tell someone who's, you know, you're going to church or you go to church, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, they often ask you institutional questions. Where's your, like, basically they're thinking, where do you go? Where's the building? That's an institutional thing. And there is a building. We're at 42nd and Lawton near that gas station that keeps changing ownership or Francisca Key or any town. That's, you know, people tell you institutional things. And that's true. There are worship services here. We baptize people here. We make disciples here. But when you ask, where is the church? When someone asks me, where is the, where, where's my church? You can also answer, my church is everywhere in San Francisco. We're in Millbrae too, for the few weird people, right? We're also in Daly City. <laughs> Making fun of my friend Brad there, so... And people who are in Millbrae, I love you guys, but we're spread out. And so we're in the Bay Area. The church is scattered around us. Some of us in Marin, we're all over. We're not just at 42nd in Lawton. It's important to think about that distinction as the church as an organism and an institution. That's one of the things that helps us navigate what the church is, what a church is and what we are to be. Last, I want to really anchor on this point. The church is called to be a countercultural community. We are called to be a countercultural community. In verses 19 to 22, Paul uses three different images, and they increase in intimacy from citizens to the household of God, like a family, and then a temple. Citizens, we get this, especially if you are an immigrant to this country, that you had a different. Uh, place of birth, you have a different passport, you understand geopolitical metaphors. A, a citizen determines your birthplace usually, sometimes the place where you identify now after a period of time. But when you're Christians, it kind of raises our citizenship. 
throughout Paul's letters, he uses this analogy because we are primarily citizens of heaven. Yes, it doesn't diminish the fact that we are from the United States, we're from Hong Kong, we're from South Africa, wherever we're from. There's a nationality to our place, but that's no longer primary. That's no longer fundamental to our identity. There's a new nation, a new kingdom, a new lord or king, to use a kingdom language. We're citizens. And this is a, a stark difference because we used to be far from God, he describes. We're now brought in. We have all the rights and privileges of someone who's in God's kingdom. If you've ever had to immigrate, or if you ever talked to someone who was a refugee, and they were given asylum and eventually citizenship in a new place, fleeing from a place. You understand how being welcomed with rights and privileges to a place is so significant. We are brought into the kingdom of God previously. No rights, no privileges, no access. You think about when Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden. They lost their citizenship. There's a lot there going on too, not just citizenship, but they lost their access to God in his place, in his kingdom. He goes on to use another analogy of the household. It means family. And this is a level in, more intimate than citizen, right? So God isn't just king or lord or president or ruler. He's also father. And these are both true. It's not just that we have rights and privileges. We are, and this is amazing, sons and daughters. He uses a temple analogy. And this is kind of ratcheting the intimacy even more significant. The temple is a, is a metaphor throughout Old and New Testaments to describe God's presence, God's, God's dwelling on the earth. And you see how from Old Testament to New, it kind of is centralized to decentralized if you trace the, the imagery of the temple. When Jesus said that, you know, they destroy the temple in three days, he'll raise it up. He's talking about himself, his body, because that Jesus was the very embodiment of God. The fullness of God's presence was found in him. And he's saying to Christians who are in Christ, we are the temple. God's very presence, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Think about how intimate that is. God isn't just a ruler. He is a ruler, but he's more than that. He isn't just a father. And as amazing as that analogy is, he's actually not just with us and above us. He's in us. That's who we are as the church. An important question to ask is, how is this possible? And what happens is, if you read throughout this passage, there's this integration of Jews and Gentiles is one of the categories. But how does he bring people from every place, language, culture, country, political background, economic status to be the same as citizens together, as family together, as the temple, the dwelling place of God? How does he do that? Look at verses 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access 
in one spirit to the Father. The Jews divided the world into two categories, Jewish people and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. The Romans had three major categories, Romans, and then those who were outside of the domain of Rome, and then barbarians. Romans could even divide even further. Uh, there are true citizens, like Paul, he was actually a true citizen, which is why when they beat him and jailed him, he kind of appealed to them and they realized, oh shoot, we actually just jailed and beat one of our actual citizens, which they were not supposed to do. There are free citizens, uh, or free people, but they're not actually full citizens. Uh, and then there's slaves in the, in the Roman realm. But these categories, we don't have them, and so they seem a little distant, but they're meant to describe something that still exists today, even though we don't use the same categories. They express hostility and division. And when it says that the, he abolished the law and the commandments, it doesn't mean that the, the law was bad, but the, the Jewish people used the good thing of the law to, dis, to kind of separate themselves, to, to define their pride and identity against other people. And so it created division. Now, we don't use the Old Testament law that way, but we do it with all kinds of things. We divide. We have hostility existing in our culture in all places and all times. People just use different things. They use education. They use location where you live, your zip code or your street address. They use jobs, the careers that we have. They use assets and income. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about pride and he describes uh, that pride is not found necessarily in being rich objectively. This is how we define our identity and pride. We just define ourselves as being richer than the next person. We're proud that we're richer than the other person. We, we do it by comparison. So if you're, you're very talented, you're actually not proud of your talent. Your identity is rooted in the fact that you're more talented than the next person. Everyone does this in our sinfulness. We define ourself in our identity by something in comparison to someone else, whether it's career, education, relationships, athleticism. Let me, let me unpack this. Let's just say I got a, a college scholarship for athleticism. What would you think I would get that in? All right? Someone want to scream that out? What would I, what would I get? a college scholarship in athleticism for? I don't know if you want to be mean, huh? What would you, what would you think? Come on. Run, maybe running. I don't think so. I'm pretty slow. Right? Wrestling, maybe. If I actually wrestled, I didn't wrestle. But, you know, I'll just say I get one for basketball because I would definitely get one for basketball. Right? I don't, I'm surprised none of you said basketball. Come on. Like, right? Come on. Muggsy Bowes? Not, I mean, remember him? I, I'd obviously get one for basketball. But let's just say I get into college because of my basketball skills, not height. Um, and I was the best on my high school team. I played with Curtis, who's a coach in our church. Uh, he could validate that, you know, when I was 25, at least I had energy. I wasn't very good. But you know, let's say I get to college on a basketball scholarship. And I was the best on my team. In fact, our team won our city championship. And I was really good. I was better than most people around me. But I get to college and I realize, man, everyone is good. In fact, 99% of people are significantly better than me, even though I was the best in my city. And then I get depressed. I get, and I start getting the question why I'm at this school. 
and I, and I get down on myself and I start, I start to question, who am I then? Those are natural things that can occur. We've probably experienced, or you know someone who experienced similar kinds of things in their life. And it's because to me, as a person who received a basketball scholarship, experiencing those moments, because basketball to me wasn't just basketball. It's who I am. Being better than everyone else defined me. And when I no longer am better than everyone else, that's when my identity begins to be lost. This is how human humanity defines self. In comparison, we do that with politics. Why do you think all political sides are always so self-righteous and define themselves so strongly? Because they're comparing themselves to the worst version of the other political party. When we do this in sports, we do this with careers, we do this with parenting, right? Uh, you go to someone else and you meet some other parent, and you're like, man, I'm so glad I'm not as worse of a parent than that person is. We, we do this. We do this with anything, right? If you collect Pokemon cards, I got a better collection than that person, whatever it is. Here's what Jesus does. And the Jews, the reason that he says he abolished the law of the commandments is because the Jews used that to define how great they were. He preached peace, the gospel. And what he said was, everyone needs to be reconciled to God. It doesn't matter if you followed all the laws as best as you could, you still failed. It doesn't matter if you never followed any of the laws. You broke all of the commandments, all the Torah. He's saying everyone in their categories both good and moral, both who are far off, need to be reconciled to God. There's not a single person who's not lost before God. Before God, when he says he preached peace, he's bringing reconciliation through what he does. He's saying, there's no one better than the next because you all need me. The drug dealer on the street and the deacon in the church, they both need Jesus the same. This is why he regularly says in his letters, remember that you were dead. That's why he says, remember. And he's not trying to rub it in our faces, but through humility and recognizing the magnitude of God's grace, something we tend to forget, that's when we become the church. This peace isn't just to reconcile people who are all lost. It's also to give us a new identity. See, this is one of the problems we do naturally in our sinful self. We define ourselves. We try to find identity in self by comparison. And Jesus wipes all that away. He says, all of you are lost without me. But he doesn't just wipe that all away and say, you guys try and figure it out now. No, he gives us all the same identity. We're in his. We're totally affirmed in Christ. We looked at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We all not only get leveled in terms of our need for God, we all get the same access to God. None of us have come into the church to say, and can say this morning, that person needs Jesus more than me. And we can't also say, this person is closer to God than me. Because we all have the same identity. Now, you can be closer and near based upon your sanctification in that, those categories, but fundamentally before God, there is no difference. This is how Jesus brings together this, this, this gathering of people who the world cannot make sense of, a community that cannot be explained by any other commonality. It's not based upon geography or affinity. It's not even based upon family blood, as strong as family blooded. This is much more significant. The world can create commonality around things very easily. Interest, affinity. Right, when we got a dog 
almost seven years ago, I didn't realize how that would change my sense of community, right? If you, have, if you ever try walking in San Francisco without a dog, you know what that experience is? You're invisible, <laughs> right? People don't notice you. They're just like trying to avoid you. They walk during COVID. They walked on the other side of the street, right? They, they, you just are invisible. No one talks to you. No one smiles at you. But if you have a dog, you ever walk with your dog? Especially that, you know, first moments as being a new dog parent and you walk with your dog, do you know what you experience? You experience community. Because random people come up to you and smile at you. They don't even want to know you. They want to like kiss your dog and hug your dog. They're like all up in your face. Like during COVID, if I walked by myself, people literally went to the other side of the street. You have a dog. They come to you still, right? They still want to talk to you because the world can create commonality across all kinds of things. But what Jesus does is bring people together who have hostility, who the world naturally will see you have no reason being together because there is something more significant, something greater. When we look at the church, it should be a counter-cultural community. The world should see the body of Christ and be very surprised because it makes no sense. In a world where, our, especially Western culture, wants to grow, right? you see all these companies that start you know, divisions in their companies with, you know, diversity, you know, exclusion, inclusion, uh, arms of their companies. They're wanting this, but it's often superficial. It's often manipulated. It's often forced because you cannot make people change that based upon affinities and commonalities natural to people because we divide. But what Jesus does in himself, bringing, you know, erasing all the superiority that exists and also erasing all the inferiority and making us all his breaks down all divisions, all hostility. Let me tie this all together as we bring it to a close. That's the third truth. Um, the church should be a countercultural community, a place where the world can't explain it. It's bringing together people where there's hostility and division. Let me, let me tie it together with a couple application points. I pray these are seeded throughout our series and things that I think we continue to pray about and think about because I know this, you know, 35-minute sermon, hopefully, or less, uh, will be used by the Spirit to, to see more change in our church, not just in this moment. The first application I think we should really consider is the church is where we should see the reality of the peace of the gospel. If we really proclaim and believe that we have peace with the living God when we were far and dead because of Jesus, we should be the reality, a reflection of that peace. That means we need to be more humble because sadly in churches, it's very easy for our old self to still raise up walls of division where Christ has already torn them all down. We still do this. We do this with ethnicity, nationality, with economic status. We do this with culture, politics. We do this with all kinds of things. In fact, you can look at this negatively and positively. We need to tear down the walls that we keep bringing up and building up that Jesus wants torn down. And we also need a humility to begin to connect 
where there used to be hostility. This should show up in our willingness to prioritize our greatest identity in Christ. Are there competing identities in your life that are raising up hostility, that make you divided across others? And you know this if you're honest, and it's hard to be honest with, with God about these things, but we do this in various ways. The church needs to be a place where we see the reality of peace reflected in our relationships. You know how you can begin to grow in this and learn this? Be intentional to find and spend time with people who are different than you. One of the great, I think, amazing things about our church and being in San Francisco, as long as we have been, is that we have many generations. We have literally newborns to people who are in their 80s, I think pushing 90s in our church. And we don't often take advantage of this multi-generational gift because we don't necessarily reach down if we're older and we don't reach up if we're younger. But pursue people who are different generationally than you, which actually means you need to spend time to make and make time for that. And you need to begin to ask and engage with people who are different than you. There are going to be people who have different preferences, life stages. One of the temptations I realize I have often as someone with young children is to merely hang out with people who have other who have children because it's a natural affinity. We have commonality because we're raising crazy people. And so we have that shared experience. But there are many single people in our church that I don't prioritize then because various things, right? There's not natural division there necessarily, but because we're at a different life stage, I don't naturally make that same time in which I should learn to engage with someone who's in a different life, life experience. Or so uh, now I'm pushing into my 40s. Where I spend, when I was a youth pastor, it was very natural to hang out with middle schoolers. Do, do, I, do I get to know and pray for someone who's entering into the seventh, eighth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade in our church so I know their name and know how to pray for what's going on in their life? We also need to listen and learn. That's one of the marks. I mean, the mark of Jesus is incredibly humble as he engaged all kinds of people. Even though he had all power, all knowledge, made everything, look at his humility. And that ought to reflect itself in our ability to, to look at people who are different than us and learn and listen. We need to be intentional while pursuing people who are different than us, which means spending time, which is why I encourage people when you come to church, I know every one of us in our culture in this day and age, we, we often pack our weekends with tons of things to do, whether it's events or chores, right? We just, or family, we just pack it, biological family, pack it. But if we're the church. We need to leave space in time for others who are brought together, not because we have blood shared with them, not because we have the same life experience as them, but because we have Jesus together. And we need to make time in our, rhythms and calendars for that. Last, um, deepen, and we'll talk about this throughout our series, we need to learn how to deepen commitment to the church. Committing to Christ means committing to his body. This means rejecting a me-centered spirituality. Instead of celebrating celebrity people that you can listen to their you know, podcasts, we, we connect with our leaders in the local church, your small group, our elders, our deacons. We dive into relationships deeper. 
not just settling for superficial digital connections. We, we embrace messy things. We don't just immediately leave when things are hard. Right? One of the things I, I've noticed during major times of transition in the city is that we'll, we'll kind of sense throughout the city. This, and when I talk with other pastors, we all have the same thing. We, we know there's like a migration of sheep around the city. Like the number of Christians isn't really growing in the city because we're not doing enough evangelism, but it seems like certain churches are growing because it's just a migration of sheep to another because when things get hard, they just bail and leave to go to another church. That's what happens. That doesn't help the body. It doesn't help the kingdom here. We embrace messiness. We don't ignore it. We don't tolerate things that need to be addressed, but we embrace things. We, we speak into them. We engage with people. We, we see when there's an irreconcilable relationship, we pursue them. We, we seek peace because we have peace with God. We need to deepen commitments to the church. That means different things to different people and different stages of where you are. And the temptation at this point, and I was writing this sermon, I was like, I can start to list all the areas where we need volunteers in our church <laughs> because we do need people to volunteer with various areas of our church. But you know, if you want to deepen the commitment to the church, you need to remember Christ. The reason he mentions remember, remember, remember is because if you want to see more of Christ, if you want to see more of what it means to grow in him, you have to remember him and that will naturally all flow into deeper commitment in the church. Remember Christ. Remember where you were. And I pray that that flows into our church community as you deepen commitment here. Let's take a moment to pray together. Would you just take a moment where you just don't say anything. Don't ask for anything. If it's a posture that's helpful for you, maybe just lay your hands, palms up, open in your lap, just as a, as a posture of reception uh, so you can receive from the Holy Spirit what he wants to give to you and say to you as you listen. Holy Spirit, make the word of the Lord bear fruit. May it not return void. We cling to that promise. May it draw people nearer to you. May it draw people to your body for your name and glory. Amen.